We commence today with a story from the life of poetess Anna Akhmanova. As she observed from childhood forward, mentored by relatives, she had a grandfather who wrote poetry, so she started writing in childhood, age seven, nine, eleven. And then she would find a mentor. Life would bring someone to her, like a bud of springtime, and then that would transmit to her <clears throat> the seed of the elder into the root of the youth, which is what happens with many poets. So she would speak eloquently and lovingly of the mentoring of love throughout her life from family members to teachers to colleagues and students and uh, lovers in life, great friendships. And the eloquence of the sentimental experience within her imparted by one being to another happens to us all. We each have a father and mother, and when we take each breath, we are partially of each parent, and it, each of their parents, and their parents, and their parents going back throughout all time. So there's a concept of eternity in us, which is mysterious, yet known in the intimacy, the space of heaven within our breath, from mother and father. How does that come together in us as one? Well, in a similar way, poet to poet, grandfather to granddaughter, this transmission occurred. It occurred in my grandfather, my father's father, William Charleston, who wrote poetry, was very deeply present in my life until his death in my childhood, my late childhood. And he loved to quietly write poetry. He was very private about it. He would write, place it in a notebook, and then perhaps share it with my grandmother, Anna, with my father, who was their only child. So that same breath of heaven resides in me and is content, the still point of eternity in my heart of hearts and in my soul as I breathe and live. And so I learned a translation point of intimate love and comfort, receiving poetry through my grandfather, embodying that, expressing it forward out into life. This quality in Anna Akhmanova remained throughout her life as her home, we might say. It's the way in which the world came to know her. So as she came forward in her life, she began to witness great losses. She came through a period of World War I, the period of many people leaving Russia, going out into uh, Europe and into Asia, <clears throat> across into other, other continents. And as she would, let us say, hold her breath and withhold her soul from life, she would immediately respond by a sort of tantrum about the human race, and she would turn to God in prayer. Many of her prayers have in common with Joseph Brodsky a deep relationship with God, with a sense of past prophets, and ways of addressing, allowing heaven to be brought forward ceremonially through prayer, 
and then entrustment into poetics and then into life. So this is a common pattern, which was in Akhmatova and then in Brodsky, it's very strong in me. And I find this is one of my reasons for creating this course in this manner. We're at a time when, as we face arguments across the earth with an increasing population of human beings and distress in the news media. So your your average journalist is not chosen to create a harmonious story in general. He or she or they are created in their job description to express something which will have a great reaction. Many people reacting, looking at the article, listening, watching them on television or TikTok or looking at an article in the, any newspaper, magazine, journal, podcast, listening, looking. So we've learned to be very identified with light and sound through reaction. Did you hear what happened today? Did you see that prize-winning photograph of something horrific? And then when we pull back to try to be present with what we've received through light and sound, the soul and heart are disturbed at the lack of heroic alignment answering the violence. But the temporal bodies, which are conceived and born and live and will die, tend to try to find safe harbor. What can I do? What might I do to avoid such horror? What can I do to not have to enter that Pulitzer Prize winning photographs war zone? What can I listen to so that I can find an answer through the lines of people at the refugee camp holding their babies near starvation. How do I avoid that? What do I do so that I am not part of that? And the truth is, all of us are part of that through eternity. However one exists as a sentient being, comes from before one's understanding, is present now, purely and yet mysteriously. One does and doesn't understand oneself wholly. And one goes on into eternity in self-evidence and yet in mystery. The mystery is actually safe home, safe harbor. One is being answered back through eternity, every moment. This relationship cannot be harmed by another being or by the elements. It can be neglected by oneself for a time. In this course, we are paying attention to the relationship one has with eternity and with the concept of the divine as God, whatever we might call God or not call God, not being able to speak the Holy of Holies or 
respectfully speaking, a certain name or concept or construct or a secular idea of the divine as the universe, the cosmos, the void, empty and yet full. And so as we face eternity, we have a sense of time. We were conceived. Oh, you of the breath of your mother and father, one cell from each of them becoming one cell that is now you. And a new breath coming forward from that moment, that instant of conception, alive and then breathing as you're born. And every breath can be a perfection of eternity manifest as your life. That would be your path. That would be the poetics of your signature. I'm utilizing Akhmadova and Brodsky as two people who were unafraid to caretake heaven and the life force of their day-to-day breathing as best they were courageously and humbly and modestly able to. Very strong personalities, both of them. I never had the privilege of knowing Akhmadova but I've been aware of her work since I was in my early college years. I have several books about her life. And when I go to her, I'm always aware, oh, I'm resting beside her. And this being she has been, living as courageously and nobly as she was able throughout her life. So what she would do in the eras of tragedy around her is she would turn within and go to the poet she'd been trained to be since childhood and a verse would just arise bird song from her heart and soul on any given day and when there would be a word or a phrase adequate in its lyricism to her heart and soul she would write it down she was not fond of typewriters she liked to write by hand. She would write it down, and she found that people were being punished, and this happened again and again and again in her life. So she saw these people are being arrested, these people are being blamed, these people are going without, this one is starving, that one has been sent to the gulag, my husband has been executed, my son is taken away, what shall I do? And as she contemplated how to react, let us say, to the evening news of her day, she was practiced enough spiritually and humanly to embody the poet as birdsong until a phrase of response rather than reaction, responding, answering Beth back in the sort of empathetic relationship to God and another being. Will they punish my son if I am too unkind to them? In the poetry I write, probably. So I will write more compassionately for the next few years and visit the prison and carry winter vegetables for my son. Maybe they will at least give him the carrots. And so she continued to study the way heaven might answer back 
her prayer for her son, heaven through each prison guard, heaven through the warden, heaven through the dictators of the region, heaven through the dictators of St. Petersburg where she was living, heaven through the poets. So if we look at the various years and chapters of her life, tragedy would come, tragedy would come again, tragedy would come again. So here are images of her glamorous painted by Modigliani and then just bereft of comfort. And yet her practice was so disciplined in that she was studying eternity, answering her heart and soul. Until birdsong arose from her thoughts and her lips and her fingers and her pen. And then what she would do is write down a poem. And because she saw so many people harmed in many ways, just because of whatever manner in which they lived, whatever their ideas were. It might be twisted one way or another. No, they didn't mean this. She didn't mean it this way. He didn't mean it this way. It didn't matter. The person was still executed or tortured or carried off to a foreign area and um, kept without adequate food, clothing, warmth. So this happened to elders she knew, colleagues she knew, peers, and younger people from her own husband to her student, Joseph. So what she did to stay in the practice is she would write down a poem. Many of her poems are not that long. They're, they're a certain length so that she could remember them. She would write the poem and keep it for maybe four to six hours or overnight into the next day or in a very safe time for three or four days. And then she would burn it as if she were burning a candle, as if she were burning a beeswax or paraffin candle in the Orthodox tradition. The long tapers, one comes in, lights the candle, sets it down in a big, large pot of sand next to all the other candles people have burning. So Akhmatova turned her practice from visiting a church or cathedral or small uh, lamp one keeps in one's own home or in front of one's own apartment or home in certain cultures. She adopted that tradition into her signature as poetess, I, Anna, lighting this candle, this poem I have composed, offer it to God. And she would actually take the written poem and rather than lighting a candle, she would light the little paper with the poem written on it on fire over a little metal cup or small tray or ashtray. And she would let it burn. The first time that I've, I've read about this in a number of places, but the first time one of her colleagues experienced this, they experienced the way in which she was in prayer. And she said to them that she did this so that no one could be harmed by her prayers. And then another period would occur politically in her area, her region, or her nation, and 
She would then sit down and write down 40 poems, which she had been able to remember. And she might send them with people who were living in another country where they could be safely kept or published. Or she would keep them until they could be published safely in Russia. So, for example, during parts of the Stalin era, she was considered really a problem child of the state. And she lived just between adequate food and semi-starvation. Adequate housing and almost inadequate warmth. And um, she wasn't homeless, but she was... She was malnourished in every way. People during that time were hesitant to communicate with her, say hello to her on the street, help her in any way, because they might be reported, you were talking to Anna, I saw you give her potatoes. <clears throat> and so she experienced the suffering of psychology, isolation, um, the fear the sacrilege, really, of our avoiding people so that we ourselves might not be harmed. And so what she did is she simply turned within and wrote her poems and then would burn them. Here's one of them from that time. I was born in the right time, in whole. Only this time is one that is blessed. But great God did not let my poor soul live without deceit on this earth. And therefore it is dark in my house. And therefore all of my friends, like sad birds in the evening aroused, sing of love that was never on land. She's often romantic or erotic in her poetry, whether she's turning toward heaven or... Um, her own romantic life with her husband or other lovers or her constructs about family and friendships. It's a certain tradition um, that comes from parts of Asia. It's present in poetry in India, parts of the Himalayas, parts of East Asia. And it doesn't necessarily mean one is talking about sexuality. It's more the union that is possible is within us as we understand our love for another person, our our mother, the, the sky, the tree, our spouse, our coming baby, our, our aging, and our, our friend walking beside us, watching a child grow. So she speaks of the bird song and of how birds with a sense of love often mate in the air. During a time when she can't speak to certain friends, or they might be arrested, or she might be, yet they are meeting through bird song, are they not? And then Stalin admired her work in later years so that rather than there being a threat of her being punished or imprisoned or executed or exiled or tortured, she was published. The Ebb and Flow, a poetess who from childhood until her death was somehow able to find this candle flame, this candle flame, eternity, in her heart of hearts, and yours, and mine. So, as we turn to the sense of this in the feminine, I, I spoke yesterday of the concept of the divine feminine and the 
primordial sound used. So I use the prayer, the divine feminine is actually the universal principle is Hrim in Hinduism. I believe I said Shreem, which is actually a very specific. So Hrim, the divine feminine in combination of all attributes. We turn to Lakshmi, the arts, the sense of beauty, prosperity, and beneficence upon the earth, and hers is Shreem. We turn to Saraswati, wisdom and grace, Aim. We turn to Durga, the principle of the feminine, which enacts grace, Dum. We turn to Anna Akhmadava, who would sigh, and then her in-breath would be representing the question toward eternity. And then she would answer with those consonants through her Russian and Ukrainian persona, the lyric of a poem, a word, a phrase, a line, a lyric of an entire poem. Then she would offer it to God. It would be kept and written or burned and let go, but remembered within her spirit, her in, within her capacity of intelligence, emotion, physicality. So I would like us to be present in ourselves. How does this exist in you? Is there a word you love? A phrase? You might think, I'm no poet. I'm not a poet. I can't do this. Of course you can. All of us are poets. Akhmadova and I were trained, or Brodsky was trained in childhood to entrust this manner of play into adult life. It's a great joy. So I'm not a renowned poet. I'm not a famous poet. Your people who compose poetry, it's just part of their signature. And then we have poets who become known in families or neighborhoods or regions or nations or the world. And their bird song becomes a translation point for all of us. So this quality of risking eternity is a courage I find really is given as the great mystery from the heavens. Will you? Will you take the next breath allowing that mystery to be home for you? Of course, why would you not? It's the choiceless choice. There's only that path, really. And then contentment arises. And allowing sound and light, the light of the dawn, the sound of the songbirds of the day, or the birds of the field, or the hawks, or the swans, or the herons, or the vultures, that quality calling also is calling from you back to eternity, back to heaven, whatever you name heaven, God in any name, from the holy of holies not being able to be spoken to a certain name, a certain quality of God to a secular principle. In the heart, might one allow 
the name of God in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Sikhism, Shintoism, and all native tribes from all over the earth to be received in your heart and your in-breath through the quality, the vowel quality of the divine feminine. Oh, I receive our attempts to represent a naming for our relationship to heaven. These traditions we call religion or spiritual principles, spiritual philosophies. Oh, how might I on my out-breath, as I express eternity through my heart and soul, be that candle flame offered? When we represent this as our vitality of life, we are fully on our path. And then allowing yourself that bird song, that word or phrase or lyric allows you to be the human authority allowing virtue to be your next moment your gift back to eternity there is nothing more splendid and beautiful than this this would be what my grandfather taught me this would be what Akhmatova taught Brodsky so the book I quoted from the other day, Remembering Anna Akhmatova by Anatoly Nyman. Nyman knew Akhmatova, I think, for about the last five to seven years of, of uh, Nyman's life. And he was, um, he's a poet, a Russian poet, but he was in a great reverence with Akhmatova in these mature years of her life. And he had the courage to approach her when she was reaching her last year. She had had a heart attack and was... Um, strong yet frail and aware that she was alive yet that the threshold toward heaven was coming for her within the coming years. She was aware of this. And he asked her about her will. He knew that her son had suffered in prison for a number of years, I think over a decade. And he knew that the idea of there not being a will which would be held, would cause the son to be abandoned or to experience a lack of being respected through the society. He was aware that her son might have the mother's vases stolen from the apartment or paintings or clothing or keepsakes, and he wanted the will to be a document written that would simply give the son his spiritual name his inheritance of virtue. And <clears throat> Anatoly asked three different times, and Akhmatov was a very dramatic personality, very emotional, deeply emotional woman. The first time he asked her, she became despondent. Like, you know, I can't quite bear this. And so he then asked her again, do you have your will? You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to rewrite it? Are you going to leave it? And so he asked her a third time. And on the next visit after these three experiences, she said to him, we're, we're going to go to the solicitor, to the lawyer, the barrister now. 
so they went and they had to walk up steps she had to stop and rest he was worried that she might have a heart attack going and tried to ask her maybe we should try to have them come a different day to your apartment and she was aware no now this breath this day she took her time walking up the steps they sat in the office they composed a will but her statement to Anatoly was interesting. She had said to him, as all this was going on, just take the Modigliani painting of me and tuck it under your arm and walk out, walk out of the apartment. Knowing that he would have given that to her son or had the son sell it to have enough money to live on or have that inheritance safely given to her friend or a young poet she was mentoring to then give to her son was her favorite possession, her most renowned possession in the world. But Anatoly wanted her, Nyman wanted her to do this in writing so that the rule of law would honor her son. And so they were able to complete this at the, at the barrister lawyer's office. So <clears throat> if we take the idea of relationship the breath of the sun in the cells of his body was safely caretaken by his mother through the intercession or the intimate love another person had for his mother and for him, for the mother and the son. The way one of the poems was given of Akhmatova so that Navalny could see it and it could be eventually published, was given by Akhmatova, written down by Joseph Brodsky. So she dictated it, a poem that she had written and then burned the original paper of, memorized. She dictated to Brodsky. Brodsky wrote it down. This is when he still was living in, in Russia. Brodsky wrote it down and then was given to, to Nyman with Akhmatova's signature at the bottom of it. So here we have the cells of these various people, the poetess, two of her protégés, one who wrote down the poem, the other who then received the poem and was trying to protect her son as Brodsky was also trying to protect his own son at that time. These intimacies are the living candle flame of all of these beings in eternity. This relationship cannot be broken by anyone. It's not politically negotiable. On the evening news when we watch, a, here we had a man break into a hospital coming to see his newborn child and he shot two healthcare workers and killed them here in Texas. That was on our news last evening. Akhmatova was not ever shot. She was harmed in her temporal bodies by the violence she saw all around her. Yet to the best of her ability, every day was one of breathing and observing the light and sound coming from the holiness of God into everything all around her, including herself. 
and then offering as candle flame the embodied practice through her cells of writing a poem, of alighting that on fire, that paper, writing it down into safe publication when possible, harming no one to the best of her ability. Every human being has this capacity. Every human being, if willing, with one's free will, has the privilege of this blessed path. So beautiful, so humble, so eloquent. And yet, why is the mystery of this space all around us, whereas we turn to the light and sound of the dawn and the dusk, we hesitate and try to protect ourselves from it? What else is there to do but to live this life dedicated toward that holy of holies, that translation point between heaven and earth, which is our signature. It's your signature and Akhmadova's and mine. It always has been. It always will be. Simply the nature of the path of the human being. Sad, deserted shore. Your fickle friends are leaving. Ah, but then you know it's time for them to go. But I will still be here. I have no thought of leaving. I do not count the time. For who knows where the time goes? Who knows where the time goes?